Sets and Reps is a podcast about wellness and growth insights from coaches and creatives who practice discipline and consistency towards goals. You can find the show on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Audible, and various other places where podcasts can be heard. We're not able to make things easy enough for people that need them easier. So we just throw out an exercise and say, like, that's unsafe for someone at a certain age or with a certain diagnosis because we don't have the ability to turn the volume down enough to make it accessible. But then on the other end, we don't know how to turn it up safely. So we just keep them in the too easy place, uh, which is oftentimes like in our current culture, it's like, well, that's a better place to be than not doing anything at all. But that's about it. There's so much more that we're leaving on the table. So I think if we look at movement as there's no movement to be afraid of, there's just what are you ready for? Here we go, back again for Sets and Reps. This is your host, Greg Gadanian. My podcast is available fully uh, for audio on Spotify and Apple Music, Audible, as well as weekly clips on the YouTube channel. So I would like it very much if you were able to follow subscribe to both of those that would be awesome really appreciate each one of my listeners coming around to check out my content it's amazing to be able to express myself and put myself out onto the internet put my thoughts into the world really with the hopes of making uh, an impact even on just one person and the fact that all of you are coming and showing up and I'm getting some new people potentially each week um, we're just building it up little by little. I set a goal for myself to have a website up for this podcast by the end of the year and, you know, be able to develop myself and, and have a firmament to keep my content. Uh, we always got new blogs uh, during the week as well. I want to get into today's guest. We've got Dr. Chris Lieb. He is the movement professional. For the past 10 plus years, Chris has been in hot pursuit of learning about movement and making sure other people can use movement too. Not just survive longer, but to actually live longer. And he presents this information very well in his book, which is called Longevity Through Movement. I started reading it. I'm about halfway through. It's really informative, and I told him this on the podcast, but it has taken a lot of the information that I've learned taking kinesiology, anatomy and physiology. He takes all of it and he applies it to everyday life and talks to me a little bit about what movements you can do every day to live longer. We also discuss uh, how writing a book can create endless content opportunities for you, uh, how you know the physical therapy model is right now in the world and what he feels the ideal should be. We discussed that a little bit. We also get into posture, really looking at where the idea of good and bad posture comes from and how we can take a better look at it. Chris has a passion for teaching and learning in the field. His goal is to take movement and make it so that everybody can use it. Chris knows that you can't get results unless you put in the reps. Here's how Chris puts in the reps. I'm a business owner, so my number one investment I think in my company is continuing education and it's just really me paying for myself to go to continuing education courses. But I, I always try to make that as structured as possible. I plan that out, um, you know, throughout the year, but I, I usually start early in the year and make sure that I have like a schedule of stuff that I want to continue to evolve with. Um, and so in that process then of kind of taking new information and paying for that, having that scheduled, then I, I'm trying to consistently create content that is taking the information I currently have and making it more structured to teach other people. So whether that is, you know, on YouTube, whether it's Instagram content, um, writing a book. And, and to me, like the process of writing the book was more to help me structure my thoughts, almost like journaling, but knowing that I would want to put it in a, in something that I could put out there for others. So I had to make it formal, right? I had to structure it. I had to reference things. Um, but the, it, it wasn't really to think about selling it or making a lot of money off of it. It was really just more of a way for me to structure my thoughts and structure what I've learned. 
So I find that to be very useful. So I, I enjoy writing and I will likely continue to write, even if it doesn't always have like a huge audience, because it's just a way for me to, you know, take what I'm learning and, and put it into a more formal setting. Yeah. Uh, your book, Longe- I love that. Your book, Longevity Through Movement, I'm, I'm about halfway through and uh, getting to the part where it's um, you're learning about movement. You, you give a very, you're very explicit about all things movement. And that's why I love uh, everything basically about what you do and what you, uh, what you're passionate about here and uh, getting to the point, putting it all together. Uh, first of all, I think um, every clinician, trainer, coach person in this industry that we're a part of should read your book um and um of course man and uh i found that it was just a really it you mentioned like structuring your thoughts and not only that but it like it structured all of the different things i learned in both exercise science as an associate student and uh currently now going through uh in uh, the field of physical therapy as an assistant it's it's like it's putting it all together and and that's that's like a sheer amount of information like it's a lot and the fact that you were able to take it all and and sort of specialize it to now put it together into something that you believe in something that you can use to help move the industry forward is is huge so when since you were using it to kind of like structure your thoughts first of all before we even do that i i I feel that it would be best to kind of give the people like a, like a brief synopsis of what the book is and, and maybe who should be reading it. Um, so if you could do that for me, that would be great. Uh, I know well, you'd be able to do it a lot better than I could. So, <laughs> Well, ideally, I mean, it, it really should be for anybody that is interested in, you know, living longer, but, but more just like, when I say longer in a more durable fashion as they get older. So I, um, I wrote it really for like the general population type of either physical therapy client or uh, personal training client, but also for the professionals that work with those clients. Right. So it's, it's not specific to an athlete, but it can have some things that would carry over from just like a behavioral standpoint of, of how to, optimize your life but then there are certain things within athletics that you probably wouldn't want to follow these same rules because athletics is by nature a little bit more specialized and maybe a little bit more extreme to be better than the person you're trying to be or the group of people that you're trying to be better and so this was just this was more for a general population and i i was trying to think of like what is the the number one thing that i would want to promote as a healthcare professional um, that's not, not super specific, but the broadest kind of, it touches all things. And I would just thought longevity, but then I defined it based on, you know, um, definitions that I found in, you know, Webster's dictionary that durability was a big part of that. It wasn't just not dying, but mm. it was that when you're living longer, you're, you're kind of owning that process and not just surviving it. So, um, anyone who's interested in that, I think the book is for. Um, and I tried to have, have some terminology that was simpler. So it could be for someone who wasn't in the healthcare field, but then there's, there's certainly some stuff that I think is a little bit more dense that would be more geared towards people that were in the, the healthcare field. But as a whole, the book should be appropriate for whatever, you know, whatever your background is. I love that. And, um, it really attests to your earlier statement about wanting to move into more of a teaching role. You're already like a teacher now, but the fact that you have ways to reach different people and their learning styles and um, the fact that your audiobook comes with a PDF of, of videos and um, stuff that I quite haven't quite gotten a chance to get into yet. But that again is, is that, you know, supplemental, like here, even if you don't fully understand this, here's a way that you can further your understanding. So I really love that. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I also wanted to use the the book for was like a a structuring of 
content after the book. So whether it's, you know, YouTube videos, um, Instagram content, you know, social media content is that instead of just throwing stuff out there randomly, the book gave me a little bit more of a structure for like what my message was going to be is, and um, I'm trying to do that. I mean, it's, there's still, you know, the, the nature of social media sometimes is like, what's the newest thing in your life? You kind of want to put it up there or, or what's something that like has really spoken to you today that you might want to put up there. But then uh, I also wanted to be able to, to feel like I had a structure that I could put stuff up there because I've, I had to do a lot of content for the book. So that can easily transition to other mediums too, which again, just becomes more about teaching from different avenues. For sure. And leading more people to where the real meat and potatoes are, like is in that book and kind of like, exactly. here's a little bit in peace. Like, so that's amazing. That's, that's very smart way to look at it. Where were you in your career when you felt like it was appropriate to start writing a book and, and, and what was happening at the time? Um, well, I guess, you know, I, I guess the, the major influence of when I thought I was going to start like writing and doing stuff for my, myself is when I started becoming like my own boss. Like I was a, a business owner and I, it, it just made me start thinking like writing content that was like from my own head was actually part of my duties as a business owner where it's like you could think of it as marketing or you can think of it as whatever but it was i needed a structure to make sure that i wasn't just like going and meeting with my clients and then going home right and and when i was working for other people i had a little bit of that where it's like okay this is, these are my working hours and then i go home <laughs> you know what i mean and then i come in and i work and then i go home um, and then i would take continuing education courses which you know were a blessing in many ways because they're they were the only kind of structured things that were, were beyond the nine to five, you know, of just going in and, and working with your clients for somebody else. Um, but when I really like started working for myself, it was just like, okay, now I got to, I got to do something above and beyond this, or I'm going to either stay in the same place or there's nothing that's going to set me apart. So I wanted to make sure that like I was thinking along those lines. And then, like I said, like the book just kind of came organically out of that because, it was a way to structure my thoughts of, mm. of stuff that I was learning or things that I thought maybe I was doing a little bit differently that could be useful. Um, and then how do I, I put that down? So I'm not just talking to people in the, in a session, like maybe broadly. And, and it's almost like a way of checking what I'm telling people on a regular basis. Is it actually accurate? Is it valuable? Or is it just conversation? Um, so I think that was the big turning point for me. It's just, you know, all right, I'm working for myself. I got to start putting content together to, you know, as, as marketing, but also as just a way to make sure that I'm continuing to move forward. A lot of people kind of just become comfortable and become complacent, I guess is a word that you could use in that nine to five setting, that job. And do you feel like, part of this for you but maybe we could use it as advice for people who don't want to be comfortable anymore do you, do you think it's like it's a way that you can be in that but also begin to work outside of your comfort zone and, and work to evolve 100 percent. and and you know one of the things that's unique now more than ever is you can you can start like the process of marketing yourself branding yourself and those those terms sound kind of icky sometimes like when you're when we're trying to talk about things like health where we're trying to help people right but if you if you really feel passionate about something you want to be a teacher like it doesn't cost you anything to start teaching you just might not have the confidence to do it yet but just you know like just putting stuff out there is part of the process and you can even say like failing so that you come back stronger the next time but like there is not a lot of risk to doing any of that so I found that just putting videos up on YouTube was basically my first step of feeling like I was offering something that was, you know, uniquely me. And then I was able to build off on that. And, that, and I started doing that even before I worked for myself. And it, it just found it to be like very liberating. And it's like, okay, this is something that I can do in any way I really want to. Like, I don't, 
know, I might not be doing it well, and that's sometimes part of the problem, but like you learn that just by doing it, right? And that gets, that, that, that creates a momentum that you wanna do more stuff along those lines. And um, I just find that to be quite useful. And it can be for, for anyone, it, it gets you out of your comfort zone a little bit, but it also can make you feel uh, more comfortable because you can take the time to structure your thoughts. So I always found like when I started doing videos or when I was doing a lot of videos, I felt more structured with how I was talking to patients because I had to be thinking along the lines of like making a video that is going to go, um, you know, out to the public, whatever that public is, as small as it might be, it just, you know, you're, you're going to structure the way you talk a little differently. And then that carries over to your conversations with your patients, even if, you know, you have a very casual relationship. I can't wait to clip part of that and put it at the beginning of the episode. I think that's super cool about um, just the sheer aspect of doing it and, and becoming better at it and then noticing how it overlays in, into all these other things. Cause I, cause I agree with that too, just with, this i mean this podcast that i'm doing and with some of my own stuff it's like it makes it it flexes your conversational muscles and like your ability to to explain things and it's super cool no doubt great to great to hear that from someone who is uh far more experienced than i and who has had the time to put in the reps in the field let's talk about some of the movement patterns and some of the functions that you uh, have used in your book as kind of ba- uh, a basis for things that people can do to not only survive and uh, just be another body on this earth, but to, to actually enjoy uh, everyday life. If you could, if you could narrow, narrow down to a few um, specific movements or functions that people can do to improve their quality of life and do either for themselves or to encourage the people that they're responsible for helping, what would some of those movements be? So, um, you know, the four broad categories I touched on in the book um, were the first one was just like moving in a less structured way. So like non-exercise activity was, is the way that it's defined in the research. Um, And you can think of that it, you know, practically is just like counting your steps, right? Like just getting more movement throughout the course of the day. That's not purposeful exercise and having a way to monitor that I think is, is important. So um, walking can, you know, can be part of that. Like that, that's actually broken down into the research, which I was surprised until I actually looked into it, like how detailed it can be, but it's not just like randomly moving around, but they actually broke it into like three different, components, which was ambulation was one or locomotion, mm-hmm. um, changing body posture, you know, which just transitioning your position more frequently. And then the third category was kind of just like a catch all for anything that's not the first two, which was fidgeting. So I, I liked that when I was looking at the, the research that it was broken down into three broad categories, because that actually made it easy to structure a chapter. So, you know, like you can think of any type of you know, walking type of, or going from point A to point B without using mechanized means as a a form of this non-exercise activity. So just trying to like keep track of that, like do that more frequently. You can't get all of your, like the health benefits of exercise in your purposeful exercise session. That's, that's sort of what I wanted to get through with that chapter. And I wanted to make that important to understand is that it doesn't matter how structured you are with your plan and and how much you're progressing within the gym from a health standpoint there seems to be a need for more than just that like you have to be also active throughout the course of the day so you can't be eight hours in a chair and then two hours every day working hard it's going to be better than not doing that but there's still something missing there that the evidence shows so that was you know one broad category which was just like try to get different types of movement in Um, And I broke that into neural gliding, which is, you know, generally it it was just a way to take the upper and lower body movements um, and connect like each joint. So like shoulder, elbow, wrist, and just get you moving in different planes. 
and I used um, some things I have learned over the years on like how the the nerve the peripheral nerves come out of the neck and the you know the lumbar region and go down into the upper and lower extremities and which angles of movement either put that on tension or create a type of glide in there. So for me, it was like an opportunity to, to use those, which I find they're just nice catch-all movements to get you varying your movement more as a way to structure the non-purposeful type of activity throughout the course of the day. So that's what I, I threw in in the chapter there. But taking those specific movements out of it, it's just making sure that you have some things you can do to keep yourself active when otherwise you'd be still. So that, that's a broad category there. And then the other chapters were squatting, getting up and down from the ground, and doing things that build grip strength. So they're hugely broad categories. And the reason that I picked them was, one, because there's evidence that if you're better at those things in variable ways, so not just better in that you can like lift more weight with the squat, but that like you understand the squat better, you have more mobility in the squat, you can move fast with the squat, you can you know, add load to the squat. Um, like all of those things, there's some evidence that, that it helps in, in keeping you alive longer, getting up and down from the ground. There's some studies on that and, you know, tested in different ways and then grip strength. There's a lot of evidence because it's used in a lot of, uh, functional testing, just like a, a grip strength test would be like looking at like what's somebody's strength broadly compared to someone else. And how does that affect mortality? So I wanted to start with those broad categories because I know I'd heard that they were in the evidence for that. But the problem is, is like that evidence is not, it's not like practical. It's not specific to anything. It was just kind of broad where it's like it, within a study, they might look at, you know, grip strength, but they may not talk at all about like what it means to actually strengthen grip and why the grip is important. It would just be like the thing that they tested. It was one of the outcome measurements. And then that gets sort of, wrapped up in you know popular culture is well you you got to do like just hand squeezes and you're going to save your life you know instead of like really understanding like functionally or why would grip be important so i wanted to like make the movements incorporated with those broad categories stuff that people already know and understand but also um help like a, a nice versatile variable program that like you're basically touching a lot of things with just those categories. Wow. So within squatting, I talked about like kind of three broad things. One was like, if you could squat lower, there's some evidence that like it, it's helpful for fall prevention. And you can think of this practically where if you are able to like sit lower into a squat, when you fall, you won't be falling from as far, far of a height, depending on, you know, what angle you'd be falling. So that was something that, you know, again, there's some some studies on that I referenced, but that was like a, a categorization of why I found like just understanding the squat and working on the squat as a valuable thing. Then for elderly people, there is studies on like just the act of getting up and down off of a chair, which you can think of as a version of the squat and the speed in which you do that actually matters. And that's actually used a lot in, in testing. Um, so it'll be like the 30 second chair rise test and things like that. The, tug test, which is timed up and go, like how quickly you can get up and go. Like all of those things matter for longevity, mortality, and then just leg strength and, and power seem to matter quite a bit for, for, and there's, you know, there's few movements that would be more of a catch-all for, for building strength and power. So that's my kind of reasoning for, for that category. And then getting up and down off the ground, uh, there was one specific study out of Brazil that looked at like how many pillars of support somebody needs to get up mm. from the ground mm -hmm. would be linked and associated with mortality. So we're like, if they needed more pillars of support to get up off the ground, then they were basically more likely to die earlier. Um, so I, I took that information and then I kind of like broke that down into some fitness movements, but also like talked about the developmental sequence, which is just the you know, sequence that infants go through as they go through toddlerhood to being able to stand, you know, and I wanted that, that to me was a structure that is foundational 
to being a human in many ways. And you, when you're in PD, the pediatrics world, so if you'll go through your schooling, I don't know if you've had pediatrics yet, but that's a, I mean, that's the foundation of pediatrics for physical therapy is understanding a developmental sequence. And it very much could be the same thing in orthopedics. It just doesn't tend to be, <laughs> but it tends to start to veer in well, with adults to more of like looking at the joints, looking at like specific structural diagnoses, but there's no reason not to use that framework of the developmental sequence and, and seeing like what you're losing basically as an adult compared to when, when you're a, a child, it, you haven't gained it yet, but then you eventually gain it to be able to stand up and walk. So that, that was like the, it was where I started with that chapter. It was actually breaking down the developmental sequence and then all the, the chapters progress to like, what are the fitness equivalents of these categories? So like getting up and down from the ground, the Turkish getup, the burpee, you know, just, but I, not in the way that they would make this would be thought of from a conditioning standpoint, but just how you can put them into the movement continuum of like, all right, well, whatever you need out of this movement, you can do it. Um, and it allows for variability in this broad category that should be helpful for you know, keeping you durable longer. Okay. And then with grip strength, it was, um, it was, it was more like three categories that I used was carrying stuff, picking things up off the ground and, and supported hanging. A lot of people are in worse off condition than others. And it's super important for things like fall prevention or improving balance in someone who really struggles with that. Um, and, you know, you've seen it before as a physical therapist. How do we use this to help people who are already in a bad condition because of, because of their age uh, or because of where they're at? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that is the whole point of the concept of the movement continuum. Like that mm -hmm. was, I think, like chapter two of the book where it's like I've worked with both you know high level athletes and you know the very low level people not not only just from an age standpoint but low level from like neurological diagnoses standpoint and you know you're you're not expecting you know full function but you're doing the best you can with what the diagnosis offers and there are i think common threads though when you look at movement like what you want to get from somebody there are common threads there. It's just to me like a, a throttle type of deal where it's like, how much can I turn the throttle up depending on what somebody has? Um, and what it, but also like understanding what's the lowest dial on that throttle, right? And mm, okay. making it still connect to the same action, right? So um, just the, the movements that we just talked about there, there is a starting point for almost anybody in any of those movements but what, what tends to happen is we hear the term squat and we think back squat or we think heavy squat mm -hmm. instead of thinking of it as okay maybe it's just like you're sitting on a chair and getting up from a chair which everybody needs to do right but there, there should also not be this thought of like okay and a senior citizen their squat is getting up from a chair or somebody who's younger can be a loaded squat no it's it's whatever that person can do and you want to be constantly assessing the next thing right so oftentimes the senior citizen gets underestimated because you they're just in this sort of protocol of saying okay i'm going to have them do sit to stand but really they've, they've been doing that for a while why not put a weight in their hand or why not have, have them sit lower why not have them go faster like there, there's, it's a game of inches that you can slowly turn up, but you should be always looking to slowly turn it up if that person's ready for it. And there is no physiological reason that someone wouldn't be able to progress if they're consistent enough and they're, they're in a process that is safe for them, right? And so I think it, it kind of goes both ways where oftentimes they're, you know, we're, we're not able to, I guess, make things easy enough for people that need them easier. So we just like throw out an exercise and say like, that's unsafe for someone at a certain age or with a certain diagnosis. 
because we don't have the ability to turn the volume down enough to make it accessible. But then on the other end, we don't know how to turn it up safely. So we just keep them in the too easy place, uh, which is oftentimes like in our current culture, it's like, well, that's a better place to be than not doing anything at all. But that's about it, right? There's so much more that we're leaving on the table. So I think if we look at movement as like nothing, to, there's no movement to be afraid of. There's just, what are you ready for? And you have to, as a clinician, have a really good system in your head of making things easier and harder that can constantly be varied depending on what somebody needs because there's a lot of variables to why someone would have trouble with something or would be fearful of something that like all that stuff has to take, be taken into account. Thanks for listening to Sets and Reps. Here's a word from last week's guest in case you missed. I know when that's going to happen to you. No, I don't. And that's the thing about passion projects and hustles. You can't, you can't put time limits on it because it varies. It's so situational. I don't know what I'm going to be doing from a year from, for a year from now, but I know what I have to do to get to my 50-year goal. Versus I think in college, it's different in the sense that like you start your freshman year, you know exactly what the next four years are going to be like. And even worse, one of my greatest fears is people who, who know the next four years of college, but then also can say, I know I'll be parking in that parking lot someday, walking down that sidewalk, and probably sitting in that office, making this amount of pay, driving this car probably, probably going to have a wife, probably going to have two kids, probably a house right in this town right here. Like people who have it all mapped out. And that's really exciting when you're young because it's security, but in the long term, you're fucked because you're going to be so unhappy that, you, that your life isn't exciting. It doesn't keep you on the edge of your seat. Like when you're in a risky financial place and you're in a risky, uh, living situation life is so much more exciting because you don't know what's going to happen you're just working towards something that was some words from last week's guest kid brian aka brian meldrum longtime friend of the show and actually the guest from episode number one so you can go ahead and check that one out after you're done listening to this one all right we're gonna get back into it so that's a really good segue into my next question. How do you feel like the model of physical therapy and rehabilitation is set up right now or, or the system? There's another term that you've used. Yeah, I think, um, and I don't want to, I, I really don't want to paint this too broadly because it really depends. And I think a lot of businesses are doing this much better. Yeah. Um, but if we went by what like the health insurance type of model would be looking for, right? And, and there's sort of actual reasons like that would actually would benefit business that I guess the quality of care would be less <laughs> for people because th- what I was ha- had experienced was a physical therapist works oftentimes with a physical therapist assistant and a physical therapy aid. And the best model for making money within the orthopedic physical therapy world would be to have the physical therapist do what they can do and the physical therapist assistants can't do the most, which is basically do the first evaluation and any reevaluation with patients and then pass off all of the care after that to physical therapy assistants or physical therapy aides because they can legally do that, right? Where what would to me be more ideal is that you have a consistency of care with the same person, you know, going through uh, the whole model. Now it's, it's, it's just sort of built to that. That's how things are in Mm -hmm. many ways. And, and there is, there's not enough clinicians to be able to handle all the people that are in need. So there, there is certainly a need for this, but, I think what happens is that also almost becomes the norm and that's becomes what's taught. Like, like there's no other way. Like if you're going to go into a, an orthopedic facility, that's pretty much what you're getting. You're going to get to see your therapist the first day um, and maybe like four weeks later, and then you're going to be with somebody else that's not the therapist after that. So that, that model creeps into the formal education process where we learn a lot about like how to do, an initial evaluation. We learn a lot about diagnosing um, joint specific things, but we don't learn a lot about movement at all. Like we don't learn about carrying over, you know, like, or, or blending into like the fitness model or 
even just being able to deconstruct what somebody's limited with. Um, so for instance, like somebody comes in with an injury, they're not always, I mean, they might be complaining of back pain, but they're underlying that they, what, what their major complaint is, is that they can't do something that they used to be able to do. Right. So we have to be able to understand that thing that they can't be, they can't do anymore and deconstruct that instead of really knowing everything we can know about the body part that they're complaining about. Um, and that's where I think in my experience, and this is again, it's like 15 years ago, where the education process is a little limited for physical therapists, but it's, it's, it's there in the continuing education world quite a bit. So it's just a matter of like, how much do you want to learn outside of your formal schooling? And I'm sure other professions are like that too, where you, you kind of get a base in your education in school, but then you know, you, you have to learn outside of school or you're, right. you're going to be average or maybe sometimes below average, like if you're not learning afterwards. So, I mean, that's, but I don't know, like that's my assessment yeah. of the model now. And there's a lot of people who are trying to do things differently though. So um, I think we should give that credit too. This is a very tricky situation being that this is how the model has been for so long. You know, you're mentioning that through continuing education and and just general work experience people can begin to think outside of the box and help move the move everything forward um but can you talk to me about your experiences and how you feel people should implement the ideas that you've put together in longevity through movement and um in in their practice basically uh for for moving this forward to begin to change that model um yeah i mean i think um for one thing is just is having like your starting point be the, the the movement problem that someone is coming in with more than the actual like anatomy problem that someone's coming in with like starting from okay the movement problem i think is a good place because you probably can get more done with someone even if you don't have as much time with them which again is one of the limiting factors with like a busy outpatient clinic is that, you know, sometimes you just don't have enough time to give people what they need. And it's unfortunate, right? Especially if you're the therapist that is really only meant to see them on that first session. And like your, your model is built to, okay, I'm going to do all the evals and then I'm going to have assistants and aides that are going to be taking care of the, the other stuff. And it's, it's really hard to, you know, like move someone forward. You, so you have to have good communication with your uh, assistants and, and, and like everyone's got to be on the same page. But I think part, part of that is like starting from a movement standpoint. And I, I mean, I don't mean that in like a cliche way that like movement is everything, but just thinking of it from, you can start with like what's broken in the body, or you can think of it as like, what is the thing that someone's having difficulty with? And I want to try to improve that thing. Right. And so I like to think of it as like the, the with what versus the where, like work on the with what, but really be educated on how to make changes to the with what. So the, you know, and that could just be the functional movements. And, and that is actually within like physical therapy, big time, right? Like the, the questionnaires that people have to fill out on day one, are all about like, what do you feel you are limited with? What do you not have confidence in doing? But I always find that it like ends up shifting back to, okay, where is the pain and what does an MRI say? Or what, what, is, what is the you know, underlying structural diagnosis? Because once I know that, then I'm gonna have somebody do the same exercises because that's what you're supposed to do with this diagnosis. And it just doesn't work like that, right? Like it just, there's no, evidence that it does that one person with the same MRI is going to re react or respond to movement like someone else with a similar MRI. It's just, so we have to understand like what they're telling us in the moment and uh, under, you know, understand how to deconstruct movement. And, you know, I think if you start there, even if you don't have a lot of time with people, it's just, it's a much better model. Perfect. Yeah. Basically if you just look at it from a diagnosis perspective and 
you get caught up in doing, you know, just what total knee replacement patients are able to do and, and things like that. And you don't go beyond that. That's, that's the rut that you get stuck in. Is that basically yeah, what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then it also can lead to, I think a lot of burnout within the profession where it, like the way I look at, at my job is like, it is, there is a, like just an endless amount of learning to do, which makes it exciting. Right. Like I can't imagine not being excited with this job because it's just, there's so much to learn. And, and the learning is not just about like, like the, I guess the anatomy and the physiology and all that, it, it's actually like, how do you interact with other people? Cause that's a big part of our job, right? So there's a whole you know, education process to that. And how do you interact and, and read what people need in the moment, right? So that's a, that's a cool thing to have to do in a job, but it's also a cool life skill. Um, but it, it's, so I just think like there's this, this process that if you're looking at things outside of just okay everybody who has this diagnosis gets the same thing then your job is going to be a lot more entertaining but like once it's just about like putting people in different buckets and giving them the same thing then you become like you're on autopilot and no one no one wants to be there forever right so it yeah. it seems like the job is, is not something that you signed up for but it's because it and sometimes that's the kind of business that you're in and if, once you can get out of that, you realize like there's an endless amount of possibilities that you can do with your education as a, as a physical therapist, physical therapist assistant, because like no one can ever take your, your knowledge away from you that you've spent the time to get. But sometimes people can take your, your will away because you're just doing the same stuff every day. And that's, and that's what your boss is wanting to do. Chris, I've been having such a great conversation so far, and I want to kind of shift gears a little bit, if that's okay with you. Um, sure. I love all of the topics that we've been covering um, about movement specifically, and also the realm of physical therapy and what it is now and, and what the, the ideal should kind of be and what it should look like. And I've gotten some great insights from you, but I'd like to talk a little bit about posture um, and dive into some things there with you. Because lately, I've been considering it a lot more. Um, and this is even something that we've kind of touched on a little bit already, how different people are different, essentially, mm -hmm. and, and um, you know, putting it, putting it plainly, what is good for one person, what is bad for someone, like th this term of good posture, bad posture, right? Um, looks really different for each person so mm -hmm. to kind of to kind of start looking at that i was wondering if you could shed some light for me on where that idea of good posture bad posture came from and whether for you know further if that's a good way to look at it or if there's a better way to look at it a better way to uh, lens to view it yeah i think it's a great question really important question now like in both fitness and, and rehab, because, you know, the term posture in to some people is like, Oh, as soon as you're, you're saying that, like, you're not understanding the evidence because there is a lot of research that shows that like somebody's posture really doesn't matter for somebody's pain. All right. And that's, and so there, there's like a whole line of research that says that, right. So the, the idea of, you know, good posture and bad posture, a lot of that can be built into some like old wives tales type of deal. It's just like sit up straight, like all of that. And, mm -hmm. and then it leads to, okay, that's now the, the cultural thing to do. Um, but the, the way I look at it is there are judgments and then there are relationships, right? So like saying something is good or something is bad is a judgment. But then there are relationships that are, it's like, it's good in this circumstance connected to this other circumstance right like so it, it really depends on the, the scenario so when you look at like what a physical therapist gets to see all day long is how somebody's posture affects their current symptoms right and then you might start to get a body of norms of okay like with this current presentation or this presentation where somebody is 
describing their symptoms in a manner that I've heard before. It sounds similar to, to something else. And this particular postural adjustment made their symptoms better. That would be good in that situation, but there's a bunch of relationships there that are being tied into place, right? So it's, there's no such thing as inherently good posture or inherently bad posture. There's just relationships that would be tied into that. And then there, there's also from like a, a movement standpoint and you know, connecting the, the systems of the body, there may be postures that are more advantageous for like the flow of fluids throughout the body or the flow of the breath throughout the body. So that might be a starting point or a standard for people when they talk about good or bad posture. But again, not just like inherently good or bad. So like the idea of the head over the shoulders, over the hips, well, maybe that's that's sort of an, an in-between between, um, for like spinal positioning. Like maybe that's a good starting point because, you know, things are, are balanced there, but you also have to ask where, how are people pulling themselves into that position? How are people maintaining that position? There's a certain amount of effort there that may not be useful for somebody's symptoms. It might actually be the opposite. It might, might be part of the problem, right? Is that somebody's got a mentality where it's like, I have to hold this posture no matter what. Well, that can be part of the symptom sometimes. So you have to, I guess, have a standard, um, but it, that standard is usually going to be based on your experience with people with similar history, similar symptoms. Um, so. I don't know if that like answers the question, but that's, that's where I would at least start with it is like, yeah, I think, I think that's where the ideas come from is that somebody somewhere had pain and changing their posture in some way made that pain better. Right. But, yeah. but then that, that's a very different thing than saying like, if you, if, if you see somebody and they're slouching, that is going to cause their pain. That's it. They're like two yeah. very different things okay. and they kind of get mixed up. I think a lot of times in, in popular culture and then what's really, I think, damaging in some ways or, or limiting is when you, somebody uses like posture or any type of movement to, to make other people afraid. So like you better sit up or you're going to hurt your back. You know what I mean? Like now that starts to create this fragility mindset within someone else where, and there's no basis for it, right? There's no, evidence that it's actually true but and it can actually be something that could create a problem in someone because now they feel like oh i sat poorly so that's why my back hurts right so because pain is very tied into what what your thoughts are in the moment or what your history is and, and like so it's like pain isn't just again something getting damaged in the body there's a lot of context behind it that ultimately comes from the brain and the nervous system. So if you're promoting this idea of like, I have to sit a certain way or I'm going to hurt myself, well, that actually might become something that causes hurt because you had that belief for so long. So I think you got to be careful. And um, what I try to promote is variability is like, you should be flexible in the way that you can sit. Um, it's likely not a good idea to be in any one position, any one position, too long without changing that position right and to me that makes the most amount of sense that posture is, is more about varied positions than it is about an ideal but if you have if you're limited in how much you can move so say you're on a long drive a lot you know a long plane flight and things like that there might be a, a better starting point than others but that might be based on you know somebody's body type Right. Mm -hmm. So for instance, mm -hmm. like if you're in a plane, mm -hmm. you can put the seat straight up. Maybe that feels best. You can tip the seat back. That's slight re reclination. Maybe that feels best. There, there'd be reasons for both. Um, and there's some science that looks at like the pressures within like the discs within the structures of the body at different angles. Um, but that doesn't mean because there's more pressure in one position than the other, then the, the position with less pressure is the best posture because there's other variables to what somebody, what creates somebody's symptoms. So, you know, there, there's a lot of things always at play and, mm -hmm. and posture is something to, to take into account. Like I, it, it's just another way to say position, right? Like right. when you're doing any movement, there are positions 
and then you transition through those positions. So you want to have a standard for your starting positions and you want to have a standard for your positions that you might be trying to hold some people in to have them understand uh, different relationships of the body. But I, just, I don't think you want to call them good or bad. I think you want to have more context behind that. A body can certainly structurally change itself to almost to protect a patient or someone from, from the pain that they're experiencing, right? I mean, you talked about the nervous system and the brain and the things that someone may, the drama that someone may create for themselves because of what someone else tells them to about their position. Um, mm-hmm. But can you talk to me about structurally how the body might change its position to in for protection, basically? Um. Oh, so for, for protection, I think there, there are some, I think, specific or like archetypal responses that, that people yeah. will tend to go on to. So if you just think about like, I guess the, the way that the nervous system is, is set up, um, like a lot of times if we're in a, in a, like if we feel threat, we will try to protect our upper centers of our nervous system. So think brain up, you know, neck is the higher level of the mm-hmm. spinal cord and then you get closer to the lumbar at the lower levels of the spinal cord and if you think about the you know archetypal uh, type of injuries to the spinal cord where if you injure a higher level closer to the neck like you you're, you could be your life could be at much more risk than if you injure something lower although you will lose like you'll lose function below that you the higher you get injured basically the more function you lose to the point where the highest centers will take your life. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's like, mm-hmm. there is a, if you think of it from a perspective of just like protecting yourself, which I, I do believe that there is these kind of innate protection responses that we have. Um, the tent, the postures we'll take on will be tend to protect our neck, protect our face, um, you know, which pulls shoulders up, right. Like kind of, closes down like open areas of the face. So like, if you think about squinting or like trying to like bite down or, you know, shrug the shoulders, these can all be natural protective mechanisms. Um, But the positions we take on most frequently, which is based more on our environment than some type of like weakness in us, right? So if if we're sitting at a computer all day, like just sitting, talking to you, like I'm, I'm not trying to sit straight up like I wouldn't want to I'd be uncomfortable I'm trying to talk right so I want to be loose like I'll, I'll move a little bit I'll talk with my hands I, there's nothing wrong with that but like if I'm trying to take on like one posture I'm probably going to get like tired and then that fatigue is going to get in the way of me thinking right so there wow. there isn't necessarily like the the best posture here but I'm not trying to stay here you know all day either sometimes you have to stay in a chair for a long, long days, right? Like a lot of people have to do that. Well, that environment will eventually win in many ways for like the places that your body's going to go. So the head, you know, everything's forward. So if I'm on a computer, then my arms are going to go forward. My head's going to go forward. Well, there's certain responses that your body has to take due to gravity so that your body doesn't collapse forward. So like a forward head posture isn't necessarily terrible just because the head's forward, but now like everything back here has to work harder to keep this head from collapsing forward. So to me, again, that's another relationship that sort of based on physics, that makes sense. But if I see someone whose head way on front of them, like I'm not going to say, Oh, they, they have to have neck pain or they have to have like some type of diagnosis because I don't know how much they move. I don't know what their, the rest of their life offers. So a static posture tells me very little, but a static posture combined with, you know, how somebody moves and what they can't do from a movement standpoint connected to maybe a pain complaint. Now I have a lot of information. And I love how you tied that back to judgments versus relationships, because that's, I think that's solving it. I mean, variability and uh, is probably the answer to what it sounds like to maintaining one position for a long time, because we can't, even if it's, even if it's like considered, you know, like forward head, for example, like if we, Mm -hmm. like, if we work chin tuck all the time, it's going to be like 
frustrating after a while to do other things. So it's, you know, if you have to relax a little bit by just getting in a different position, that's, that's wonderful. Um, That's perfect. And another thing that I try to consider is like, when you have to be static, there's usually a way to try to add movement to static postures. So instead of trying to hold something in a better posture, try to find maybe a a way to create motion in an otherwise still position. So that was part of that like non-exercise activity chapter that I did was just like trying to create different ways in different positions, whether it's standing, sitting, um, even, you know, lying in different positions where you're not just hanging out, but like you're, you're creating sort of more purposeful movement in those different postures, but not doing it in a way where you have to go and schedule workout time. Mm-hmm. That it's just like something that's easily ingrained to the things that you're already doing. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And they like the number one, I guess, or let's just put it this way. Like the, the movement you can do, no matter what your scenario is, is breathing and you are doing it no matter what, but controlling the breath and being able to move your breath throughout your body. And there, again, not a right way to breathe or a wrong way to breathe, but just relationships around breath and posture that there certainly exists. So if you can gain control of your breath and kind of do what, what you want with it, (laughs) you have so many more options for being comfortable in positions of stillness. Um, I mean, you know, I just experienced that, like being on a plane, I'm sitting in a middle seat, right? It's just like, okay, this is uncomfortable. I got about three hours. What's the best thing I can do here? And it was really just like work on breathing. And it, it seems like, okay, I want to watch a movie and, and things like that. But like in that moment where I just felt like kind of angsty and I wanted to move, the only option I had other than getting up and going to the bathroom every two minutes was trying to work on moving my breath from my body. So, you know, like that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do, but if you have a practice with that, it's there for you and you're confident that it's there for you. So long durations of sitting become less intense, right? They get, they become less scary. You're also creating motion. So say you have like back pain when you're sitting, you're, if you can move your breath low, you actually can move your back while you otherwise would just be taking the same pressure from gravity. So you're able to create circulation. You're able to create forces that would be more distraction in nature or where you're kind of creating space for joints. And then you'd be able to also guide muscle contractions. Um, And again, you can do that in varied ways by just getting more control of your breath. So that is something I think is underestimated because people, again, they judge the idea of it. They think of it as like, okay, there's a right way to breathe. There's a wrong way to breathe. And then people will argue over, well, belly breathing is not really good for you. Or it's, it, instead of it just being like, okay, belly breathing is one way to breathe that is different than breathing up into your neck. So you want to have multiple ways to mm-hmm. breathe and you understand the relationships there so that you can use that as a movement practice when otherwise you can't move in any you know more gross manner right like you can't make bigger movements with your limbs so i think that's clutch and to me if i have a standard for posture i want to be in the posture that makes it easiest for me to breathe and to move breath or pressure through my body yeah that makes me yeah when when you were talking about comfort and stillness and relating it back to breathing it was making me think of like the sauna or the cold shower and how that can be an easy way for people to get comfortable in those uncomfortable situations. Mm-hmm. No doubt. So along the lines of like, there's no good way, there's no bad way to do this, but um, taking it back a little bit, I guess, to purposeful exercise and then adding this component of variability throughout your day, because it is necessary Um do you have advice for ways that ways that people can do this? Uh, and uh, we've, we talked a little bit about it as far as, you know, when you have to sit for a long time driving or being in a position of stillness, but do people, would people, would you advise people like organize 
a routine almost like purposeful exercise when they go into the gym for an hour and just make it for maybe those types of various movements that they can do? Uh, yeah, I, I think like it, what's good is to make a parallel to the things that most of us are already doing, right? So if you think about like brushing your teeth and showering, those are two things that we do routinely to keep hygiene, right? So if we, uh, you know, use the generic term of or uh, cheesy term maybe of movement hygiene, it's, it's a similar process, right? So you want to get, you want your day to sort of be built around some movement practices that just like naturally fit within the day. So, or um, just like brushing your teeth in the morning and the evening sort of naturally fits. And then, you know, everyone's got a little different shower schedule, but there's usually like a time that becomes the norm for you to take your shower. Um, and I would just look at that the same way with a movement practice. I think what helps get people into that is using technology. Um, and even if you're someone who is pretty practiced at it, like the technology makes it better. So I'll use like my own example. Um, like if I want to do breath work, mm -hmm. I can count my breath. I can feel it move. I can do all the things that I've been trained to do, but it works a lot better when I have like a timer that is like a, a specific app that's for a breathing timer and it says inhale and then it says exhale and I can change the amount of time for the inhale, the exhale. And there's just something about that is like when I start that, like I can, before I even start the practice, I could put in the exact amount of time I want to do, the exact like amount of breaths I want to do. And as soon as I start it, I know I'm going to finish it, mm -hmm. right? So it, it, instead of it being like 20 minute practice, it's a one second practice to hit start, right? And I just think that that is so true with like anything where you're using a timer, um, you purposely set a timer to link to the movement practices you might want to have. So another uh, easy one for people to get is just doing some type of joint mobility while sitting on the ground while watching TV or doing something else, right? So instead of sitting on the couch and watching TV, be on the ground. Now the ground will be more uncomfortable, but it will force you to change your position. So then having some type of structure in how you change positions, I think is quite useful. But again, you can do that randomly, but having a timer that sort of goes off every two minutes might give you a little bit more structure. And then that structure makes it more like brushing your teeth as a structure where it's like, okay, I do this, you know, for two minutes or something every, every night. I know I have two kids and that's our thing. Like we try to get them to use a uh, hourglass so that they don't like cheat themselves on how long they brush their teeth. Right. So oh. I think timers um, work well and technology works well, like having an app that sort of reminds you to move. Um, I know like with water bottles now they have that where you, um, I think it like the, the water bottle will light up to tell you to drink and oh, yeah. that stuff matters. And I think not appreciating how that stuff matters. I see that gets in the way of people changing their, their behaviors is thinking like, I got this, or I know what to do. I'm just not doing it is like, I, if, when I hear that as an excuse, it's just, I, I know that the prognosis is not great. So like being, being able to change the mindset to say like, I actually, it, it's the smallest thing which will start like the biggest um, kind of habits. Like being in that mentality, I think it's huge. So um, yeah, I, I mean, that's, I guess that would be my recommendation there. But if you look at the specific movements that I find to be the easiest to fit into your life, it would be sitting on the ground and varying that up. So that in the chapter on getting up and down off the ground, I put a bunch of positions that you can train there. Um, and then, you know, walking more places is an easy one mm -hmm. right? whenever you can, not like everywhere. I made the mistake of getting a bike and thinking, okay, I'm going to ride this bike around my neighborhood all the time. Like when I go get groceries and what I realized is the problem with that is that my life is too scheduled. So it takes more time to do all those things. Yeah. So when, when the opportunity arises and it fits into your schedule, walk more, you know, maybe take a bike more frequently, but I don't think you can change your whole, I mean, if, if you're changing more 
than just like your movement practice when you're walking everywhere. You're you're not doing as many things eventually. <laughs> so maybe that's the valuable thing, but like um I think we have to be able to, you know, still fit it into what we're doing currently. Thank you for that. Yeah, that 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 validates the um the idea that I had. And I'll let you know if this kind of goes along with it. Um I just got into riding my bike again. Been a minute since I had uh and I live four minutes away from the gym that I work at and that's by car. So obviously it would take me probably like 15 minutes to get there by bike. And so um, I work there on the weekends. I open up the place at like, be there at six 45. So, you know, next weekend at the weather's nice, I'm just going to ride my bike there. It will wake me up in the morning, um, especially after sleeping all night, being in one position. And I, just it will just be a lot healthier to do than i've just been getting so used to driving there it's four minutes mm-hmm. away like we can we can find ways within our within our space and our schedule and our life to create this variability and i just mm-hmm. love that this has been such a huge uh part of our conversation today yep so um Chris, I, I mean, thank you. Thank you so much again for coming out on the Sets and Reps podcast. Like we've talked a lot about great things today, movement and creating a better uh, model of movement and how we can relate that to not just physical therapy or personal training, but for, uh, you know, doing what you do best, which is helping educate people about living not just existing and, and doing that for the rest of your life. And uh, especially about posture, you've helped open my eyes to a lot of things that are becoming more and more important in this space as I grow as uh, uh, you know, in my career. And, and ultimately we've also discussed actionable things that my audience can really take and, and glean from um, because I, you know, I seek to help people that spend a lot of time, putting in the reps and, and, and showing up every day. And, and that can take a toll depending on what your position is and what you do and how you do it. So 